The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to The Waves for Thursday, November 1st, the Radical Gender Ideology Edition. I hope you all had an excellent Halloween yesterday. I'm Hannah Rosen, a host of NPR's Invisibilia. In the New York studios, we have June Thomas, Senior Managing Producer of the Slate Podcast Network. Hello, June. Hello, Hannah. And Noreen Malone of New York Magazine. Hello, Noreen. I feel like I got a less uh, British greeting from you. <laughs> Hello, Noreen. Hello. Thank you. Thank you. How was that? Better. That was better. Oh, okay, my good. God, Hannah, I didn't know you did a British accent. Why <laughs> have you been I holding this back accent. from us? I did because I, I can't. I can't do an upper class British accent, so I'm a little self conscious <laughs> about it. Uh, <laughs> it's too much Me watching neither. of Scandal, whatever that show was. I watched like 400 episodes. Of that. Shameless. Shameless, thank you. Oh my God, it's set in Manchester. You should be talking like me then. (laughs) Exactly. I watched (laughs) a lot of that at one point. All right, so our topics today, we're going to talk about the Trump administration's attempt to roll back trans rights. Second, online hate speech and what it does to women. And finally, the widely popular newsletter, The Skim, and what it says about millennial women. And then in our Slate Plus segment, we will discuss, June, take it away. Well, in our Slate Plus segment, we will discuss whether it's sexist to expect Hillary Clinton to change her mind about Monica Lewinsky. We'll be debating that. And if you want to hear that segment and if you want to support Slate's journalism and get ad-free podcasts and take advantage of many other benefits, you can go to slate.com slash the waves plus to learn more about Slate Plus. All right. Let's talk about the trans rollback. The Trump administration is taking on transgender rights on many fronts, legal and administrative. They're considering a policy change that would narrowly define gender as a biological condition determined by genitalia at birth. And just in lots of creative ways, trying to essentially define transgender people out of existence. So we're going to discuss exactly what they're doing and what they are so afraid of with Alex Barish, who is our production assistant and has written about the Trump proposals. Hi, Alex. Hey, happy to be here, although I wish under different circumstances. (laughs) (laughs) But you're always here with us. Now you're just here and they can hear you being here. Um, (laughs) So can you, um, since since you've looked at these pretty closely and there's just like a whole range of them, um, can you talk about what's the most alarming front that you see or the one that you feel is like the most devious proposed change? Yeah, I think the big one is the one that came to light from this HHS memo that the New York Times got hold of uh, last Sunday, which established the fact that they are trying to redefine sex, as you said, as this biological immutable condition determined by genitalia at birth. Their backup plan is to use uh, birth certificates as originally issued and genetic testing if it comes to that, which just seems insanely dystopic to me. Uh, But their plan is to call on the quote-unquote big four agencies that enforce essentially civil rights protections, uh, the Department of Education, the Department of Justice, uh, the HHS itself, and the Department of Labor to adopt this definition. So essentially this would rob trans people of legal protection from discrimination under the law. And uh, they're planning to present this definition to the DOJ before the end of the year, and if the DOJ approves then it can be enforced. And it seems likely that they will because they're already urging pretty much exactly that. They uh, they submitted a brief to the Supreme Court a few days later that said it's cool to discriminate against workers on the basis of their gender identity and that it doesn't 
violate federal law to do so. So it's not great. It's not a great situation. Can you talk, like, who's driving it? Like, what's this whole thing? Like, there's this whole idea um, about radical gender ideology, you know? Um, like, they feel like yeah. they're on to something and they're combating this scourge, this fakery that has taken over government policy. Can you talk about what that is about and who's driving it? Yeah, it's very strange. Uh, the main actor, I would say, is Roger Severino, who is the director of the Office for Civil Rights at the Department of Health and Human Services. So he's he's kind of the guy spearheading this memo. And he has written many uh, op-eds about radical gender ideology, which is also a phrase that comes up a lot among the, the evangelical right. So it's sort of this idea that there is a, a certain way in which people should behave in accordance with their sex and that anything counter to that, which might include LGBTQ identities of, of any kind, uh, is to be objected to and opposed. And... Uh, we we see that as well in other branches of government. You know, the the word gender itself is considered to be sort of a product of political correctness. And there are actually uh, U.S. officials at the United Nations who are trying to remove the word gender from various documents. So, for example, gender-based violence becomes violence against women. Uh, it, it's just this very odd, uh, wide-ranging initiative to say that gender is not a thing. And, you know, we see it in the U.S. and beyond. Which is so disingenuous, that thing in particular, because it's meant to make it seem like, oh, we're helping women when in fact, A, you're not, and B, you're sort of creating this false either or between women and trans people. Right. I got to um, say, I didn't, I never thought hard about the gender woman one, like how insidious that was. It never occurred to, I just thought gender was like a boring word, you know, like, you yeah, <laughs> yeah, or just like, Ugh, like nobody wants, you know, it's just like an academic word, but I never realized that it was like this. Sorry, I'm an idiot, but like, I do, you know, host a feminist podcast and all, but like, I just didn't <laughs> think about that. Like, it never occurred to me that the term violence against women was some kind of right wing <laughs> conservative <laughs> way of framing well, it it used like, to be, right? That, yeah. I'm, I'm interested in why this has taken hold in evangelical communities, right? Something, something like abortion, you can see clearly why that is a particular fixation. But is there some sort of biblical justification for bigotry against trans people? Like, I, I mean, my knowledge of the Bible is perhaps not <laughs> what, you know, it should be. But like... As far as I know, Jesus was not addressing this, you know? <laughs> well, th this has been a long time thing. Like, there's, very, there's nothing about LGBTQ hate either, but they've always managed to find some examples. But Jesus was addressing this. That's what kills me. This drives me crazy. <laughs> like, the, the, there, you know, we've received so many things from the Torah slash Bible slash Old Testament, New Testament, Christians, Jews, all out there. You are welcome to your own, whatever you want to call it. But it's, <laughs> but it's, um, we, we just received certain things like about dominion over animals and there is man and there is woman. Like, it is, it is to me like a, like, I think it's just a, I, I this is my, my, the question I puzzle over all the time like why do they care so much why is this a thing that they super fixate on you know like why is it so important and it's become so much more important in this moment like 
out there on the web to Christian conservatives, to libertarians, the alt-right, to like hard define what is a man and what is a woman, you know? And it's just, isn't it just like, it's got to be a power thing, like as outlined in the Bible very helpfully, like the man does this, the woman <laughs> does this, like the man, seriously, like it's just yeah. like a source yeah. of hierarchy that it's about power. Like, I don't know what else it would be. Like, why do they fucking care so much here? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I do, I do think it is genuinely to do with the idea of gender roles or sex roles, that there is a certain way in which a woman should conduct herself and present herself, and they see trans men as women and trans women as men. So, you know, when those people defy the the standards that are set out for the sex they were assigned at birth, that scares a certain contingent. Um, and you why? know, we've why using the, why why does it scare them? Like, what is the problem? Like, if know. your wife is I doing wish her I knew. thing, if that's your ideology, and your wife is being a wife as you want her to be, and your husband is being a husband as you want him to be, like, why do you care? You know, yeah. that there's some like why is that a threat? <laughs> I don't think any of us are going. I mean, I in my view, it's a it's a just conservatism that change is hard. Change is hard on a lot of people, and the the notion of of I don't know what gender fluidity of there not necessarily even being gender roles is very disruptive to some people to some lives you know it's it's generally disruptive but it's more disruptive to some people and some people's view of the world than to others I think one and, distinction that I think no, is no, important please. to make is that it's not as though they are resisting a new change they are actively trying to roll back changes yes. that have already happened yes. you know yes. we have this very substantial judicial consensus. You know, we have a number of court cases that have ruled in favor of including discrimination against trans people as uh, sex discrimination under Title IX. And we have a very strong medical consensus. You know, the American Medical Association, the American Psychological Association, the World Health Organization, the takeaway over and over has been that trans people are real and that legal recognition and access to transition-related care is important. So it's not just... uh, oh, some people are slower to accept change than others. It's them looking at an entire community and saying, I don't want these people to have the rights that they now have. And also the other thing that I think is important to note is that this isn't just going to impact trans people if it comes to pass. Uh, Intersex people are going to have a huge problem if this is realised. You know, one in 1,500 people have ambiguous genitalia at birth, and that's the metric that the Trump administration wants to use in order to assign someone's gender Oftentimes there are invasive surgeries that are uh, performed in order to sort of make whatever that person has into whatever the doctor decides is best just by looking at them. And, you know, the the rates of incorrect assignment are something like 40%. So a policy like this would, I think, encourage those kinds of very hasty decisions in terms of just assigning a sex to someone at birth. And then if those people feel that the wrong choice was made, they have no recourse if this, you know comes into play. Hey, because I, I know you have a degree in biology. I do. And I know nothing about biology. Like, these tests, are are they total... I mean, is there any basis in, like... Like, it really annoys me that they are using biology as a shield when, you know, first of all, this is clearly an evangelical enterprise. They don't care about science. And second of all, <laughs> uh, their understanding of biology is the understanding of someone who studied it at 14 however many decades ago and mm-hmm. has not checked since or and you know their conception of biological sex is essentially an unenforceable fantasy the the term biological sex can mean three different things it can be based on internal genitalia it can base, be based on chromosomes it can be based on external genitalia and in as many as 1 in 100 people those three things don't match up 
So if you try to define someone's sex on the basis of one or any number of those, you're going to come up with competing answers. And then what do they do? They don't seem to have a plan for that. So, you know, to use biology as a shield is cowardly and incorrect. And I don't like to use science as the the justification for someone's rights. I don't think we should have to go that far. But if they are going to wage that battle, like, I'm right. That bi- that The biological aspect really is very important because I think it also... It, it's as you say it's a shield but it's also like a, a little bit of magic where like those of us which I think is many of us yeah. who really have no understanding are like well I can't really argue with that because yeah. I don't understand it and yet they don't understand it either and they're just using it but at the same time like you need somebody to come and say bullshit <laughs> I'm always yeah. immediately suspicious when there people are just put like according to science I'm like what science is not political yeah. like what do you mean according to fucking science like, <laughs> exactly not it's, thing, it's not an apolitical enterprise like my ass <laughs> yeah yeah, and you've read your Cordelia fine, so you're you're ready to Hell go yeah. as well. According to science, fuck you. <laughs> I mean, but just go back to, to go back to what you were saying, Alex, about this being an active rollback, and what you were saying, June, about this being an essentially conservative impulse. I do think that, like, I know that I love to bring up the term backlash, but that really does feel like what we're experiencing, and you know, even people who. I know who are liberal and I and I think like do not wish trans people any harm have made have heard made comments like why is this taking up so much of the cultural discourse? And I think that's something that's happening is that, okay, so there has been a whole lot more discussion about trans rights over the past few years because like we've been playing catch up, right, that this hadn't been a part of sort of front and center. And a lot of people are sort of figuring out what it means, both legally and also just like how to talk about it, like how to understand it. And I and I think that like that, I don't know what to do about that, right? Because you can't not talk about it. And, you know, as people in the media, it's such an interesting story. It's like a new story to talk about that gets at so many like intersectional things in you know gender and um, the way we talk about gender so it has been written about a ton and I feel like some people think it's just being shoved in their faces right there's that American thing where it's like do what you want but don't shove it in my face and I feel like that is has given people cover for for what might be a more deeply held fear or power struggle or hatred or whatever but if they but by saying like just stop talking about it like that has sort of been a way that people can vocalize their discomfort with it. And that always makes me so uncomfortable, though, because so much of this conversation is about defending rights that are being threatened by, you know, people who want to take away people's rights. And, you know, they're caused by cisgender men with very, uh, you know, conservative ideas, very narrow ideas. And so if you push back against that withdrawal of civil rights, then you are then accused of making too much of this side issue, this marginal issue. You know, then you get the identity politics people, you know, up in arms. I mean, you know, you get you hear that over and over and it's like they started it. And I know that can't be the end of it, because if we just let them start it and go on with it, they're going to remove people's rights. And and, that you know, that can't be acceptable either. It's it's a. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And I, I I agree with all of that. And also particularly with what Hannah was saying about how this does affect women like you know using the uk as a precedent the gender recognition act there that situation is a whole other segment but uh because of this sort of climate of hostility toward trans people people are starting to police each other's appearances in you know restrooms like there are stories of 
cisgender women being kicked out of the women's restroom because somebody thinks they might be trans or, you know, anyone who's, whose presentation diverges from what you would expect for what you perceive to be their, their gender, that is met with hostility. And I feel like that is not a good thing for anyone. It's, it's something that we really need to push back against for the good of, you know, not just trans people, but many others in the country. Yeah. No, I mean, it's just an interesting thought experiment. If, if women are sort of pressured to dress more femininely than mm. act more femininely and then what how does that redound that's like a really interesting chain of events yeah. and it's not just the category of women who don't dress femininely like to me it's just clearly all women it's very separate but equal. oh yeah like these people talking about clear gender roles are sending a separate separate but eh, maybe equal message like it always goes along with the hierarchy there's never been a case where people want to strictly enforce male and female rights where where there hasn't been an implicit hierarchy about who gets to occupy the public space and have more power never it never works in reverse so it's just never good um alex can i ask you is um so so as as people have been talking about trans rights this thing noreen said about like oh my god it's so in our face or like that you become a walking metaphor for gender fluidity like what is that experience like you know like to have gone maybe like you know 15 years ago where it's a little bit in the shadows and you have to think about how open you want to be about it to suddenly it's just like talked about talked about and like people are like god get out of our face already with your visibility you know like like (laughs) like what is that transition like yeah i mean it's it's not great. It's it's. I don't think that trans people actually want to be the the center of attention all the time because the, the reason that these things are constantly in the news is because more than two hundred anti LGBTQ bills were introduced by lawmakers in the past year, and fifty of them targeted trans people. You know, these things are being litigated over and over and over again, and nobody wants that. Like some some federal level non discrimination laws would be great, but I, uh, you know, that's. That's all that people are really asking for. And to have your existence politicized in that way is is really difficult. And, you know, there there are people who have lived their entire adult lives as one gender and have had to jump through bureaucratic hoops in order to get the gender marker on the documentation changed. And, you know, for all intents and purposes, by the, the Trumpian definition of anatomy, these people are, quote unquote, biologically uh, the gender that they identify with. And for that to suddenly be taken away, for the Trump administration to say, actually, no, the bureaucracy that you've had to contend with and the surgery that you've had and the hormones that you've taken are not enough to make you who you are, that is devastating and that's really difficult and people should not be put through that. Mm -hmm. And that's going to have ramifications for them whenever they try to get a job or seek medical attention for anything, not just related to their transition, but just going to the doctor's office and wondering whether you will be given care. That's that's huge. And that's damaging. Oh, well, thank you for saying that. It's it's now you lay it. <laughs> no, you lay it out. And I it's like, uh, like, I think the struggle of being being able to feel how you internally feel, like being able to sort of like this, the, the kind of great effort it takes to be able to confirm that, like it's an effort, you know, it's a medical effort. Like you said, it's a, it's a psychological effort. It's a family effort. It's an effort in your community. It's got a whole lot of work. Um, so I see what you're saying, like to have that kind of like like to have the fuck you come from the government i i never like to have i'm doing all this work and then people are still saying nah not enough like that that sucks 
Well, um, not just people. I mean, I think that's like people who federal laws affect healthcare. I'm sure, yeah. like uh, hormones, gender reassignment surgery, all really expensive and complicated, and it's it's like not just metaphorical, mm-hmm. yeah. right? Right. And, you know, these are these are the standards that were set by the government in the first place. The idea that you need to, you know, say, be on testosterone for 12 months and have surgery in order to change your marker from F to M on your ID. And, you know, there are people who go through that, all of that and then to to reach the end of it and be told. Psych. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's cruel. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, the right word for it. Yeah, no, it is. Um, just to, I'm not, I'm not trying to be all like end on a positive note, but I'm going to end on a positive <laughs> note, which is just our, the last thing. Like, you know, Alex or anyone, is there any, you know, uh, Lambda Legal Defense Funds have have sort of pointed out in the press recently, like you can't do this because there are actually solid legal protections that have put into place. I just want to know your opinion about that, like. How far have we come legally? Is there any definitive sort of Roe v. Wade type thing that the Supreme Court is considering? Like, like what is there any sort of um, stake in the ground either already in place or coming that 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 sort of works against what the Trump administration is trying to do? Uh, I was just going to say, Mark Joseph Stern, who is Slate's legal correspondent extraordinaire, actually wrote a really good piece that sort of laid out the judicial precedent and what the courts have had to say about whether or not discrimination against trans people constitutes uh, discrimination on the basis of sex or sex stereotyping. And overwhelmingly, the courts have concluded that it does. So there is some hope in terms of if if this comes to pass, uh, it can be fought in the courts. But of course, it would be preferable if it... it, uh, died before it got that far (laughs) yeah okay well we will all hope um alex you were fabulous thank you so much for coming on the air and joining us yeah uh thanks for having me yeah (laughs) okay after the shooting at the tree of life synagogue we all learned about gab the online site that doesn't put any restrictions on hate speech or violence people there are free to hate jews women whatever they want to hate Uh, We are going to talk today to reporter April Glazer, who's a tech writer and a host of If Then, because April has known about Gab and all Gab-like things for a long, long time. Hi, April. Hi, thanks for having me. Yes, we are excited to talk to you about this thing that you know a lot about. Um, So you have called Gab a digital playpen for white supremacists, which is a really, really memorable phrase. Uh, Maybe I can ask you, um, I bet you weren't surprised when Tree of Life happened, like, I bet you were just, like, knowing that something like this was coming, because you've been tracking this for a long time, right? I mean, of course, I was surprised when it happened. It's a terrible thing. And it's nothing that any of us have on our calendars or or, or, or see, you know, necessarily manifesting in that way. But I, I have been watching communities of hate on the internet for, you know, a year and a half now really closely. And I've seen them talk about, uh, violent things that they wish would happen. I've seen them talk about people in such dehumanizing and disparaging ways because of their religion or race. And so I really was not surprised to find out that the shooter had an active account on Gab and that he had found community in his hate then. But um, but I, I, I was surprised, I would say. I, I wasn't shocked when, as soon as I found the details. It, it, I was kind of expecting that to be part of it. And you yourself have had, like, you've been writing about this a long time and had a lot of blowback, which you tweet about. Can you talk about that a little bit? 
Oh, sure. I mean, when I first started reporting on Gab, the first question someone asked me on the social network, because I joined it to, to kind of learn more about it, because anyone can join, right? And and the first thing someone asked me was, you know, are you Jewish? With this recent report, since it ended on Sunday, you know, Gab was deplatformed. It was kicked off the internet because the different companies that interoperate with Gab that provide its cloud hosting services, that provide its payment processing, decided to stop doing business with it. That angered a lot of Gab users. And so they went after journalists, as they tend to do. They really demonized the press, um, similar to what you know, Trump does. And I received, uh, you know, numerous emails um, about how, uh, I'm just going to use a word here, how I'm a disgusting liberal cunt, about how um, I'm a stupid twat and how I will be doxxed. Um, I've had um, people attempt to dox me before, which is when I get uh, notifications that they're trying to change my passwords and get into my accounts. So uh, so I've certainly, you know, been attacked. I've, I've had a real deluge of, um, you know, rape jokes and, uh, you know, anti-Semitic things lodged at me um, for my reporting over over the past year and a half. And it's gotten really intense in the past month. Oof. I mean, it's the woman like that's the thing that I, you know, it wasn't particularly relevant in Tree of Life. But but the thing that freaks me out about this, the reporting you do in this world, is that it just allows a language about women and, and, and kind of violence you know, that I get is virtual, but more and more like the line between virtual and explode into the real world is thinner. And it just like it creates a kind of giant universe where that where that kind of approach to women is is allowed and echoed by everyone. Yeah, you know, I I, I has I want to push back on on classifying it as virtual or, or acting like it's not real, because politics are inherently social. And when people socialize online, they're actually socializing, right. And, and they begin to socialize in these beliefs and, and adopt these political beliefs, which can lead to this kind of like politicized violence. And when you are the kind of subject of hate speech, and you see it, and you you go into these spaces, and you see swastika after swastika after swastika, and you see all of these rape jokes, and you see these, you know, threats or these people talking about their desire to kill people because uh, of their, their Muslim or because they're black, um, it feels very real. And so it, it, you know, of course, they're not sitting there, like, necessarily plotting uh, to do something, they're maybe just joking, it may be a thin line, you know, but it, it's the whole point of these communities is that they blur the line between a meme and a joke and what's real. April, is there a meaningful difference in the way that you're treated on Twitter? Because obviously, you know, Gab exists to almost facilitate this kind of thing. Twitter supposedly doesn't. Twitter supposedly takes this stuff seriously. I will just share an anecdote from my sister's life. My sister is a political reporter. During the Kavanaugh hearing, someone tweeted something really heinous at her about like her wanting to be raped or needing to be raped. She reported it to Twitter and they told her that it existed within a broader political context so they would not take it down. And I found that really shocking, right? Like on Gab, you sort of don't think that they have great motivations. But on Twitter, you're supposed to be able to speak about, I think this was, you know, speak about the Brett Kavanaugh hearings as a political reporter without someone tweeting like visceral things at you about rape. And I wonder if that's been your experience as well, that Twitter just sort of turns a blind eye or if it's better. Yeah, no, I've had really bad experiences, particularly with rape language on Twitter, particularly writing about and tweeting about Brett Kavanaugh. So um, I can absolutely relate to that. 
you know, I uh, have had so much uh, vitriol thrown at me because of tweeting about Brett Kavanaugh. And I don't even tweet that much. You know, I think I just said the Wall Street Journal had released an op-ed that said Susan Collins consent. And I said, this sounds like a rape joke or something like that. And I felt like it was a totally fair editorialization of something that I was reading in the news. And I, in response to that, couldn't get on Twitter for about three days because of the amount of um, like sexist and, and quite frankly, like rapey things that were coming at me. And and it's it's just really jarring and, and unsettling. Uh, but I, I've reported the anti-Semitism that I've received reporting on the alt-right to Twitter and was told that it was not a violation of their policies. I re-reported it and was told again. Um, and then uh, like a week later, sometimes they'll be like, oh, we reconsidered. You know, I've had people ask me, you know, do you want to go back and, and report again? But that's basically asking me to go through all of this terrible stuff I didn't want to see in the first place and then re-report it. So, um Twitter has not been great with this, but at the same time, it's it's very different than Gab because when you go there, it's not the first thing you see. It's not the front page. You know, it's something that happens in the back channels, and it's not an open invitation that they offer for this. Um, it's something that they ostensibly have rules against, whereas Gab structurally does not have rules against it. I'm I'm so I mean, like any <laughs> any thinking person, any feeling person, I find this absolutely appalling. I understand how absolutely limiting to people's lives and careers and, you know, how it it's, it's you know, an attempt to silence people and it often is effective at silencing people. But like, what can we do? Is it a matter of having, of, of Twitter having clearer guidelines, of actually sticking to its guidelines? Um, should Gab not be allowed to exist? I mean, obviously having been deplatformed, that's, that's, in effect, almost what might have happened or what might be on the edge of happening. But at the same time, some part of me as a relatively new American, when I think, well, what about speech? Um, you know, are we really OK with cutting down this heinous, horrible, horrific, threatening, violent speech? Like, word, what, what do we what is the solution to this vile spewing of hate and threats? Well, there's two things going on here, and, and um, I'll start with the fact that the group, the companies that decided to stop interoperating with Gab, were responding to policies that they had on the book that uh, do not permit their clients to engage in hate speech and violent rhetoric. And yet they only decided to enforce these policies after something really bad happened. And really what these companies could do is take reports that come to them seriously when they are reported and not just act when something terrible happens. And that also would prevent the types of allegations that, you know, always surface when a bunch of companies decide to act in unison like this, because because like Alex Jones could say that his deplatforming was political because, you know, Twitter and Facebook decided to take him off their networks all at once when if they had, you know, consistently enacted their policies from the beginning, you know, it wouldn't it wouldn't appear like it was some, you know, cabal. <laughs> the second part of this I just want to add is that when it comes to Twitter, not really taking its policies seriously. A lot of that goes back to a law that was created in the mid-90s called the Communications Decency Act, which is a really important law for the internet because it basically says that online platforms are not responsible for what their users do on, on them, right? And it allowed these companies to grow tremendously and gain tons of, you know, new users instantly. And they could say whatever they wanted and Facebook wouldn't get, you know, their pants suit off. And this also gave investors confidence to throw, you know, millions and millions of dollars at these 
these companies and they knew that they would be able to last. But it also gave them no liability, as I said, for what happens on their platform. And, and, and the result of that has been for them to do nothing, right? To turn a blind eye. Liability is a really important tool in, in, in one's arsenal, right? And the way the liabilities laws work on the internet has essentially shielded Twitter and, and Facebook and these places that are massive hosts of speech to let whatever they want happen. April, can I run something by you? There's like, okay, so that's, there are like political solutions. Um, there are legal solutions, both of which you outlined. The legal yeah. one seems really smart and interesting. But but one thing that I often think about is I think that we willfully blind, like you said very quickly, like it does seem violent when you spend time on these sites. But I actually think there's some fundamental, like maybe philosophical or emotional problem where we just kind of are not under, we, we are refusing to engage the question of, the real, not real, like the post-fact question, we kind of do it as a criticism, like, oh, it's a post-fact age, we have to do facts, like we have to fact check. But like, we literally do live in a moment when that is not an important distinction. And when, like, we just somehow are not reckoning with how information flows and what's real and not real. I feel like if we were more, like, realistic about that and understanding about how there isn't that great distinction right now, we would take things more seriously and we would be more on top of them and we would fight back in different ways than we do now. Yeah, the the, the hasty way that our lives have been ported onto the Internet, I think, has given us kind of this level of vertigo where we don't actually know what's real and what's not real anymore. You know, are our social lives online real, right? Are our right. friendships online real? Is the hate online we're receiving right. real? And right. um, as far as I can tell, in my experience, yes, is the answer. The, the political discourse is real. It shapes it shapes our world in equal force as it does with any community meeting that I don't go to, right? And so- <laughs> But aren't I we think, still like um, fact-checking? I feel like all we ever do in response to that is like, no, 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 like there are facts. And like there are facts, obviously. Absolutely. there are facts, but like there's a whole universe of kind of signaling and back and forth and sort of real and unreal that somehow we're just like, we, we, we won't dive in, into that, you know? And yet we still, I think, uh, really stint ourselves up on and really prop ourselves up on a need to validate what happens online with, with you know, offline facts or with something that we can, you know, hold in our hand. Right. And, uh, and it's true that, that as we continue to collapse into that, um, kind of a need for veracity in the real world that, um, I don't think we're going to take what happens online seriously. And we're, and honestly, the internet is kind of this anti-empathy machine, or at least Twitter is right. Because people for some reason aren't sometimes taking every, it's just not real and people are able to be mean arbitrarily and people, you know, it's all, it's so dehumanizing and right. we've really kind of, I think existed within that for the past few years so intensely, so quickly that, um, that we, yeah, we do lean on, on the need for quote unquote real world facts. Um, Whereas some people don't and, like Donald Trump has been playing this game so well for so many yes. years, like even before the internet, what like that whole New York Times series about how he became rich was like from 1995 to 2005, he just created an image of richness and turned it into reality. It was like completely fake. Like he just created a sort of sense among a lot of people that he was thriving. He understands that there is no distinction between image and fact. And so like if other people don't understand that, the wrong people get to manipulate that this world that we live in. 
Anyway, that's my uh, soapbox tirade. Yeah, Sorry. it's good. It's mimetics, right? It's, yeah. No, it's 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 like it's creating um, cultures online, and 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 you know, Steve Bannon, just to go back to Trump, has said the importance of memes. He's talking. Of, he's talked about this a lot. The importance of memes and and kind of his like. Uh, coagulating of the far right. He, he's he said this before he got into the White House while he was in the White House, I believe. Um, and uh, and this has been very central to the rise of this type of kind of despotic power. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's it's there's something about the architecture of it that makes life on the Internet worse. Right. Like for a long time, people thought that getting rid of anonymity which you see less and less on the internet, would fix all of this. And it kind of hasn't, right? Like immediately you could find the Tree of Life shooter, you could find his actual account online, right? Like he was doing all this stuff under his real name. And so if that hasn't fixed it, there's some kind of like the world's worst locker room effect where, you know, people are sharing these inside jokes that happen to be hate speech or something. But like, I I just, I keep thinking about what is the... What is the sort of cornerstone thing that we haven't been able to figure out and fix and like is just the Internet architecture is totally fucked? Well, except, OK, so I know I'm going to push back, which is that I suspect that the real problem is hate because, yes. sure, Bauer was online. He was on Gab. He was getting this revving up, you know, from, you know, again, his spewing his anti-Semitic hatred. But. The, you know, we. I think it's not crazy to link his. In fact, not crazy because there's actual. You know, if we believe what he says, we he, there's actual evidence that it was stuff that Trump was saying that. You know, George Soros is behind the caravan. The caravan. Fox Fox News uh, doing repeated shows and segments about the caravan, and you know, the and hinting that it's paid for by Jews, specifically George Soros. I mean. Uh, talking about the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society uh, that then Bowers specifically cited in his last Gab posting. I mean, the hate isn't all online. It's I think in a way sometimes it's easier for us to think, oh, it's Twitter. It's and it is those places we're seeing it there, but it's out. You know, like the president is is seeding. Terrible conspiracy theories, Fox, which millions of people watch every single day, is repeating factless, scaremongering, hate-mongering stories that then are getting people revved up. It's not just these social media networks. It's coming from, you know, the call is coming from inside the house. For sure. And I don't think we can discount, like, Fox at all. But, but I do think that, like, people may before, like, people take comfort in or or just, like, get energy from other people saying the same things as they do. People mm-hmm. feed off of each other. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so I, I really, I mean, yes, hate is the actual problem, but I do think that the internet has a multiplicative force in this and yeah. it, it, there's just something about it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's hate. It's the way the internet can create communities of people that wouldn't commune otherwise. Right. So like these white supremacists might not be able to find other white supremacists or people who are curious about these ideas locally, but they're able to find hundreds of them around the country or around the world online. Um, and I also, I agree with June that it's, it's a hate issue. And I want to push back on the, the desire to kind of de-anonymize the internet as a solution to this because anonymity has provided uh, safety and ways for people to create community in, in, in incredibly essential ways um, throughout the history of the internet when people were unable to find that community and safety in the real world. So like, yes, it's provided shelter for hate, but it's also provided a way for trans communities to, to form, for AIDS activists to continue their work and for activists around the world who you know are under 
uh, duress because of uh, the terrible government, censorious government that they're under to continue to, to organize. And I just, uh, I think anonymity is actually a really important part of the internet, but it's taking hate seriously, right? And realizing that just because somebody has a fake name and, and a weird profile picture that they're not just, you know, some crackpot, but, you know, they're saying hateful things. And so we should take that seriously. Yeah. All right. Well, on that note, um, take hate seriously. That's going to be our (laughs) mantra. Um, Thank you, April, so much for joining us. Keep writing. I'm sorry you have to take so much shit for all the great work that you do, but we appreciate it. Well, I appreciate you having me, and it's great to reflect on all of this with you all. So uh, thanks again. Yes. Thank you. All right. Let's talk about our next topic, The Skim. I'm so excited to talk about The Skim. It is a wildly popular newsletter founded by Daniel Weisberg and Carly Zakin a few years ago. What was it, three years ago? Um, Six. uh, Six years ago. Wow. It's that old. Wow. It's a news summary aimed at millennial women. It's generally like neutralish, not really politically neutralish, but like not as political as you'd think it would be. And sometimes cute in a text language, you know, way, like brief explanations of the news of the day in a girlfriendy tone. For example, uh, the tagline, yesterday when I was reading Skim was skimmed while seeing what our ex is up to. Um, oh my God, do I have so many conflicting visceral emotions when I read the Skim. Uh, but Noreen, I'm going to start with you since you wrote a story about it. Why did you write a story now? Like, why do you think that this is especially, like, what 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 caught your eye? Is it like, what is this saying to us about millennial women, sort of this moment in politics? Like, what about the Skim is is interesting to think about at this particular moment? Well, I actually got interested because of news in the spring or summer that they had done a round of fundraising where they had pulled in mostly women individual investors. So Tyra Banks, Sarah Blakely, who invented Spanx, Shonda Rhimes. It's just this like crazy group of women to have investing in your product. And then I looked into it a little more and like the New York Times has invested in them. Um, So I was interested in it as a business story, but as a culture story, I got interested in the question of like, can you gender the news, right? Because what they do, you know, women's media has existed forever. Women's media tends to sort of gender the story selection, like say, okay, this is what women are interested in in this moment. And then the tone of that is a real range, right? Like you can have incredibly thoughtful, deep things and you can have like basically ad copy that's selling you lipstick. Um, And most of it falls somewhere in between those things. But what the skim does is it takes just like whatever is on the front page of the major newspapers and, you know, doesn't say like women would be interested in this story, but men wouldn't. It, it, you know, it puts in stories about Myanmar and Syria and stuff that like many of us might, unless we had a particular interest in foreign policy, maybe skip. Um, I know that I am sort of guilty of doing that when I read The New York Times. I sort of select for the stories that I want. So anyway, they don't gender the story selection, but they have they write this, the, the newsletter in this tone that is so controversial. Um, Christina Cotterucci, uh, our our co-host of The Waves, called it the Ivanka Trump of newsletters. <laughs> she was writing, I think, and <laughs> making the point that like it's pretending to be interested in the news, but the tone, which, you know, sort of compares it compares struggles in the Middle East to for they might compare it to like you know, a a squabble that you're having with your roommates, right? Like, so it's sort of take these events on the world stage, makes them relatable for women in their 20s or, I guess, 30s. Um, And 
she and a lot of people find that just totally uh, insipid and sort of bad for the cause of women that, you know, like, first of all, you're assuming that that people that women don't take the news as seriously as men do and that by giving it to them this way, you're reinforcing that feeling that like you don't have to care about the news that much. You can it's not that serious or like it is serious, but like whatever. And so I got interested in that tension. But Hannah, so you are you a skim reader? I, I you know, I'm interested in the skim. Like I read okay. like the actual newspaper. So um <laughs> It's fine with me not to have like girlfriend things. I'm a little old for that. But like, I am just interested for the it's like so it's so I am so conflicted, you know, I I think we're because it's just like it is, you know, a lot of times when something is cordoned off as being for women, it's just it's it's one of two things. It's like, you go, girl, like, rah, look what all the things women are doing. You know, I don't know how I feel about that. Um, and then there's the other mode, which is like hyper militarized, politicized, especially now. I don't know how I feel about mm. that either, because it just both of those modes just leave a lot of shit out. So so this does not leave stuff out. Right. Like it does give you a pretty broad view of the world, but it but it does have a built in assumption that women don't give a shit about anything other than well, women things. I don't and, know that that's true. Yeah, Wait, yeah. Can I just or push they back need to on be handheld. They need to. Yeah, go ahead. Push back. And then I, I have landed well, I, in a different place. But go ahead. Yeah. OK. Yeah. I mean, I think it I think what the skim presumes is that you care enough to be informed and like truly informed. Like if you read the skim every day, you will know more about the news than like probably 95 percent of Americans. Right. Um but you're super busy and you want to digest and you want to digest that like draws you in and makes you feel part of this community or whatever. I mean, there are a ton of people who read the skim. It's 7 million people. I think it's like, I forget the exact percentage that are women. I think it's maybe 80%. It's mostly women, mostly women with college degrees um, who have a certain amount of earning power. It's not that they are, and, and you know, they have probably good jobs. Um, I talked to one skim reader who also reads the Wall Street Journal and 538's newsletter every day, right? Like that is a very particular, those are those are serious news sources. But yeah, I mean, not everyone has to be a news obsessive. I went into this with a, with a like chip on my shoulder about the mm-hmm. skim's tone, right? But I started thinking about my own news consumption. I am a news obsessive, right? That's my job. It's my job to know what's happening in the news. I read Twitter all day. And sometimes people get so into the the weeds of stories, the sort of tweetable detail, the f- making the joke, or just like whatever th- whatever corner of the news is of interest to you, that you miss the bigger picture, the ma- the way that you might have gotten if you were skimming like a print copy of the New York Times. Um, and so, an explainer is helpful to sort of start from the beginning. And you know, I made this point in the piece, but Vox does that. Yeah. Slate has you know done forms of that. New York Magazine does that, but they aren't sort of aimed in this way at women and it's not just that it's aimed at women i think it's aimed at this caricature right. of what womanhood is and that's what gets me because i enjoy a news summary email i subscribe to a bunch of them and i think it's entirely about tone like it's if you ever get a bunch of journalists especially relatively young female journalists in a room and and mention the skim they're going to go off because the tone is it's just so it's the opposite of directed to them and i think that it's just like anything this is aimed at millennial women i am not a millennial woman and it drives me up the wall it's not about like i was i'm incredibly impressed 
by the news topics that they address. They do not avoid hard news. They really give you some really boring fucking news stories. Like they're, they are in the, like the serious stuff, but it's the way they write about it. And that's okay because it's not aimed at me. It's, it's aimed at, it's just like, you know, a lesbian bar doesn't just have to attract lesbians. It has to not attract other people. And I think it's just exactly the same thing with the skim. It's not only got to, you know, attract millennial women, it's got to repel other people. And that's how you <laughs> kind of keep that, that, you know, that whole thing of like your skim, what are they called? Skimbassadors and uh-huh. like making it be, you know, for us buyers. Like it's, it's, that's a branding thing and it's a targeting thing and it drives me up the wall, but it's fine. I mean, like, Hannah, you mentioned you earlier in your intro, you read one of their setup lines. And like, what the hell was that for? Because those drive me crazy. Like, you know, the topic for this uh, segment, if it the little setup in Skin would be like, what happens when you when two of your BFFs hit something and one of them's more open to it or something like that? <laughs> Only it would be it would be slangier. Like there'd be a Mean Girls reference. Yeah, there'd be a Mean Girls reference. Like it, it that's what gets me. But that's okay because it's not for me. Yeah. I mean, the thing that uh, people have criticized it for, you were saying that they take on these very serious topics and they do, but they don't shift their tone. Like I actually forgot to go and look because I'd finished my story at how they handled, for instance, the Tree of Life shooting. Right. So there I mean, particularly in the Trump era, like there are just so many stories that are just like horrific. Mm -hmm. And the skim has come under fire for like treating them with exactly the same sort of bubbly like we're gonna set it up with this pretty light joke that's sort of you know a joke that sounds like it could be on a sorority joke website except it's about you know the travel ban or whatever it is and that's another thing that gets me is like there's no possibility of ever graduating from this tone like a lot of people who defend the skim or who like the skim say hey this is like an it's a gateway drug like it's it's what's going to get people into the news hey whatever it takes to expose people to facts and to truth and to the things that are going on in our world that's great but to me it's like it's always superficial and that's all it's ever going to be that's its raison d'etre and so it's not like you kind but you of, said you like a news briefing I do I do like a news briefing but I feel like there's a the tone and again it's a tone thing the tone of the skim is always like it's never going to change because it that's it like and that to me is a frustration like you want when you when you are so keyed to your readers as they clearly are you kind of want to feel like you're helping them to learn more you're helping them to that, that at some point they're going to graduate from this summary and go somewhere else and it's not about the fact that they you know yeah they link out they link to stories but every day they get the skim they're going to get this bland like 101 they're never going to get to 102 they're never going to get to 201 they're certainly never going to get to a graduate level description of things the skim will always be the most basic version of the news and like to me that just like that's that's the kind of there's a sadness to that like where do you go from there you're just always going to be at that level i just don't think that's true necessarily i I, you know i talked to this woman who had gotten into reading the skim because her sorority sister had told her about it and now she subscribes to the print wall street journal which i don't think a lot of 25 year olds in america do right so the skim might not change its readers might change but also like not not every one of us needs to know everything about every story, I think. That was, you know, what you just said. The skim never changes, but maybe its readers do. Like the news is 
overwhelming like it's just like a knife in your eye every day all day these days <laughs> it's so <laughs> negative and nasty and hard to take you know so i feel like for a lot of people not us because we're journalists it's just like ch check out or go crazy you know so i was thinking like the skim just is like the little little bridge you know, um, like you, you keep informed, it, it allows you to sort of like, like start the process. And then maybe you start reading the Wall Street Journal, or maybe you'll read one or two stories about this thing that you heard about on the skim. But it like, it just makes this, this hard world a little more palatable and keeps you just engaged enough. So you don't just check out and, you know, be on Instagram all day. Can I ask you guys why you think women want a news product that's tailored to them? I'm just... So interested in why women want women specific products, right? Like the skim is free, so you don't have to pay more for it. But so often it's like you buy the shaving cream that's exactly the same as the men's, except it smells like god awful <laughs> floral, vaguely floral scent, you know, and you pay twice as much for it. Like, what is it that we is it is it because we are sort of victims of a male dominated culture where we want everything to be feminized or is it sort of taking back and saying, no, I want this thing that like is only created for me, um, particularly this sort of younger brand of companies. It's created by women who are peers or sort of in that group. Like, is it a political stance or is it like more of the same? I think we all want a, a moment or two in every day or at some point in our lives where where we're with our own people, however we define that, and we all of us belong to many different groups. So maybe it's that. Um, it, it's, it's funny, though, because I, as I say, I subscribe to a lot of these daily newsletters. I only read one or two of them on a regular basis. I just delete them. It's very easy to delete a newsletter. You know, you see it there unless there's some big thing going on, you delete. But there's something about the skim that just makes me like I've <laughs> subscribed many times and unsubscribed in rage many times. And again, like it's clear to me it's just about tone. And that just means it's not for me. It's clearly for, you know, and it's like it's it reminds me in a way of the Cardassians. It's really easy to be bitchy and make all kinds of cutting comments. Boy, am I jealous about how much attention, how much people care about Kim, how much money she can make. Would I like to make that? You know, sure, I would. So there's like a, there's an air of as an edge of jealousy, like they're onto something. Well, June, you know what else loves Kardashian metaphors? The scam. <laughs> I bet it. <laughs> um I think it's like our lady boss conversation where I think that women don't yet see themselves at, like don't see the public sphere reflecting how their brains work um, and mm. their priorities and sort of what the things they find important and the natural way that they think about things. And so women are often self-editing or feeling like they have to slip into a particular kind of tone that dominates the public sphere. And so you back out um, and create a, a kind of separate sphere. I don't know how I feel about that, but I, but I think mm -hmm, that's, mm -hmm. you know, I don't know if I think that's a cop out or like we should populate the public sphere with a way of thinking and being that feels more organic and natural. I'm not sure. But yeah. but that's why I think that 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 we keep doing it. Yeah, I think there is like a code switching going on. And like it's not it's not a it's not a code that I'm that is it's not one of my languages. But. You know, there's certainly like some of these other newsletters, like there's an aspirational quality, like, yeah, I would like to feel like I'm in the know in that. And even sometimes, well, usually you can kind of see how they're manipulating you. <laughs> like, it's OK, like because it appeals to me as it's speaking one of my languages. And yeah. and, you know, it's just it's just a smart way of, of finding ways to talk to more people. Well, 
listeners, if you are readers of The Skim or have been for a long time, please send us your journey with The Skim. Whether you've always loved it, how you use it, do you use it as gateway, like what purpose does it serve in your life? We would love to hear it. You can tweet to us individually or write to us at thewaves@slate.com. Okay, recommendations. June, why don't you go first? Speaking of first, my recommendation is a piece of art that I had so many like qualms and complaints. I was yelling at the TV, but I really want other people to watch it because I want to talk with other people about it. And it is called The First. And it's a show that Hulu did. It's about the attempt to get to Mars, to get humans to Mars. It stars Sean Penn and a lot of really bulging veins that I find very <laughs> disturbing. Um, and then, though, there are a lot of women in the show. And one of the things that made me kind of crazy was that the sort of Elon Musk-like character, the woman who is driving this uh, this amazing attempt to get to Mars, this amazing scientific voyage of discovery. She's an English woman. She's played by an English actress, uh, Natasha McElhon. But she is given a northern accent. And this made me insane because it was never explained why they'd given her a northern accent. She does not naturally have a northern accent. And in British shows, if you have a northern accent and you and it's not a northern set show, that generally means you're the murderer or some other, you know, ne'er-do-well. So why did they give her a northern accent? It was never explained. Also, why was her name Laz? Why, where did that come from? Um, why are... Sean Penn's veins like that. So there are a lot of questions that I want to discuss. And so I really need people to watch the show. It's not very many episodes. It's not much of a uh, of a time investment. So people watch the first on Hulu with me, would you? I'll do you that solid. I'm interested in that. Um, right. I'm going to I'm going to give you a recommendation that like I'm not telling you anything you don't know, but I, I feel I feel a need to make this recommendation. Um it's it's not even that current, but the second season of Insecure, I can't really like ex- like I can't really convey how much I love that show. And the reason I feel the need to make this recommendation is because of the Wesley Morris essay, which I also thought was excellent, which we didn't discuss. This was should art be a battleground for social justice, in which he talked about how all of aesthetic criticism now is political criticism. And his opening gambit was that he didn't like. He mentioned at a dinner party that he didn't like Insecure, and um, and just got like taken down for it because. Like you can't go out there publicly as a critic of note and take down a show that's created by black women and that stars black women and, you know, that is about racial issues in a certain way. And I actually hadn't watched the second season of Insecure until I read the Wesley Morris essay. So I went back and watched it. And I I love that show. Like, I love everything about it, like just how funny it is and its depiction of female friendship and just so many things about that show that I love. So. I do, too. I love you it. only like it because Lawrence is a Hoya. <laughs> and Lawrence is hot. Lawrence is crazy. Um, I just think it's it's so pleasurable, like I kind know. of in that Sex in the City way. It's fun. And it is and better than Sex in the City because it's like more gritty. Just like I love being inside it. Like it's the show that puts me in the best mood, you know, like just watching it puts me in the best mood. It's not complicated for me. I just like love being in the in the she's so fucking funny and I just love it. You know, are you an Issa or a Molly? Am I an Isa or a Molly? You're <gasps> such a Molly, Hannah. <laughs> really? I don't. I think that's a fakery. That's only if you don't really know me. Like, I think I seem Ooh. like a Molly, but I actually am an Isa. You know, Molly. I think that might be right. Yeah. Molly yeah. on the streets, Isa. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> streets. No, it's like Molly at work, Isa on the streets. Is, is that what I'm actually like? Um, anyway, all right, Noreen, what do you got? Um, I have. Uh, two podcast recommendations. 
Um, one of which, have you guys heard of this little podcast called Serial? Um, so the, yeah. <laughs> the third season of Serial set in, set in Cleveland, Ohio. It's set in the justice system of Cuyahoga County. Um, so I am from uh, Cuyahoga County um, and I'm related to many people who work in the law, who are mostly lawyers. Um, oh, she does Cleveland, that list Ohio. of the Irish. That I never thought I like half of these are Noreen's <laughs> uncles. Like, <laughs> for, I have no actual relatives who are judges. But but it's funny because I sort of grew up hearing a lot of these names at the dinner table, like Judge So-and-So. Um, and so it's fascinating for me on that level. But it you don't have to have that sort of level of connection to Cleveland. It really is just a fine-grained look at how screwed up our justice system is and the way that lack of funding plays into that. Um, You know, you don't come away, at least I don't come away thinking that people are poorly intentioned. It's just sort of a a total mess of things. You know, people have beliefs that you you might disagree with, judges and police union chiefs in particular. Um, But it is just fascinating. I mean, I, I have small quibbles with the um the sort of tone of it um just like from an editorial perspective i would do things slightly differently i think it's personally more interesting when there's more tape of people and less of the hosts kind of um editorializing a little bit but i just think it's it's such a overall fascinating uh podcast series Um, i second that i think um you know as a person like as working in radio it is really difficult to address structural issues. Like, it's really difficult Mm -hmm. to step out of. I mean, one of the key problems in radio is that you're a little dependent on emotional connection with a central Mm -hmm. character. Um, But that creates a political problem because then you've got, like, anecdotal, like, you're moving people with emotions. So it's just a real challenge to do uh, a series or a story about a structural issue. Um, And I just, and that's, probably why she talks so much to be frank like because otherwise yes. you have to revert to to radio trope of like you know arc of person so i just think it's brilliant i just think it's brilliant piece of journalism anyway number I two think they tip their hand a little bit too much they in a do it's just like she the tape is not that <laughs> forget it i'm gonna get into rate it's like <laughs> well, hard to get good tape from like when you're recording in these kinds of circumstances and so yeah. you just have to step in but um yeah. but i hear what you're saying like from a listener perspective it sounds like editorializing um yeah anyway go ahead second one Okay, and the second thing is um, my colleagues at The Cut have launched a podcast um, with Gimlet Media. It's called The Cut on Tuesdays, and at the end they say, see you next Tuesday. Mm. I think they named it just to say that. Um, but my friend Molly Fisher is the host, and she is great. And in particular, um, I think you, if you are a fan of this show, The Cut's podcast is actually quite different, but you might find something to listen to there. Um, they do a quite different kind of podcast than we do. There, I would point you to their most recent episode where a cut writer who grew up in Toronto has investigated what made one of her high school classmates turn into one of Canada's leading white supremacists. And she goes back and sort of traces like what this girl was like in high school and all the things that have changed her since and, and confronts the woman. So yeah, the cut on Tuesdays. It's great. I love it, by the way. I love it. Um, All right. Well, that is our show today. Thanks to our producer, Danielle Hewitt, to our production assistant, Alex Barish, and also our fellow podcaster on this week's episode. Uh, If you have questions, ideas for what we should talk about, please tweet us individually or email us at thewaves@slate.com. We always love to hear from you. For June and Noreen, I'm Hannah Rosen, and The Waves will be back next week.